We're so glad you're worshipping with us this morning in Castle Hill. We're spread through the suburb and yet we're together and that's wonderful. And we're much further afield than just locally. I'd like to welcome Brian and Elaine Formenti in Adelaide and Patty and John Banks in Bonnells Bay. And wherever you are, we're so glad you've joined us. We're very fortunate that we have this wonderful technology that enables us to be together even though we're not. Paul Duncan and Brett Samuels are here week after week, producing and editing. This is their 32nd program. How many hours have those young men given us? And today they've got a great team with them. On cameras we have Jessica, Nicole and Erin, Max's stage manager, Jessie's looking after lighting, and so you can see our program comes to you with a lot of hard work and dedication. And it's the younger folk who will be leading us in praise and worship. Now, we haven't been seeing each other from week to week, and these kids are growing up. So that you, so that you can recognise them, let me tell you who they are. Leading the singing, we have Keely Tuatama, Georgie Bruce, Kana Lillo and Amanda Pacotti. The musicians are Tim Jakovac, Josh Diaco, Caden Rad, Julian Jalesic, Max Donald and Lachlan Roy. And we need to say thank you to Damien Rad and Joel Pacotti for getting them ready. Marvin Malcolm, our senior elder, will be leading in our study of the word today. Marvin's entitled his talk, a letter of hope. I love to receive letters. I don't get many these days. This is one I treasure. It's from Molly Rankin. Now, some of you may know her or have known her, and some of you may remember her rather cheeky columns in the record when she was writing from New Guinea when she and Ian were missionaries there. The Rankins moved next to us in Avondale in the early 60s. Ian had come to study theology, and Molly and the, the kids, of course, were with him, Paul, David, and little Seth. Our families became close friends. Molly was such fun to be with. Her visits always had us laughing. I remember at one occasion early in our relationship, the two big boys had spent most of Sunday building the most amazing cubby house. And of course, little Seth, who was about 18 months, two years old, couldn't help, and he wasn't happy. Finally, late afternoon, they had it ready. And then we heard screaming, we heard a crash, we heard crying and yelling, and we rushed out to see Molly with her head in her hands on back their step, and the boys all on ground level. But Molly wasn't in tears, she was laughing. You see, Seth had decided to dance on the newly made edifice, and it all fell down. His brothers were cranky with him because he'd caused it to fall, and Seth was cranky because, well, it had fallen down, hadn't it? And Molly was in stitches, so medical assistance wasn't required, and we all had a good laugh, and I think eventually the boys did too. As they moved from place to place in ministry, Molly and my mum particularly kept in contact, and later it became Molly and I. Molly's Christmas note of December 1998 carried two pieces of news. 
The first, that they were moving to a new location to be closer to their boys. And the second, soberingly, Molly had a diagnosis of bowel cancer and months to live. This is Molly's last letter. I'd like to share some of it with you. It's dated the 15th of May, 1999. Now, I expected it to be full of sadness. But listen, this is Molly speaking. This terminal cancer business has been a real-life experience. But far from a devastating time, it has been the most blessed of my life. No longer can I organise and say what I shall be doing in 2000. I'm entirely in God's hands, and it's the most wonderful place to be. Ian is coping well, and I think we are more in love now than we were 40 years ago when we first met. And she goes on to talk about how she's concerned about the effect of her sickness and de imminent death on the, her children. I am now on fairly heavy drugs which enable me to be pain-free, but each day I seem to get a bit weaker. However, I have to hold on until I've finished quilts for each of my two youngest granddaughters. Two weeks will suffice for that, and then I may have time to get sick. In the meantime, I'm wallowing in God's blessings, moved to tears by the love he bestows and the support and love that I receive from family and friends. God is just so good. I won't have the opportunity to write again. God bless and love. I want to die laughing. There's so much in this world to laugh about. Love, Molly. And that letter is so Molly. It's so full of faith, hope and love and, yes, laughter. It's easy for us at the moment to feel down. The news is grim, we're stressed and some of us have, are suffering. I find Molly's letter inspiring. She's focused on others, concerned about those dear to her. I love her phrase, I'm wallowing in God's blessings. May God be close to each one of us this morning as Marvin brings us his letter of hope. I was thinking about what I was going to wear today and uh, I looked in the wardrobe and there were all these suits that were just there languishing and they had no owner and no love and no care due to COVID, and I thought, well, what shall I do? I'll, I thought, I'll pick out a suit. And then I thought, well, which suit shall I wear? Shall I wear the blue one? Shall I wear... And then I thought, well, I thought I'd wear something that kind of matched what was going on here. So that's us today. Um, we've had a, an interesting year so far. Uh, for some people, it's been one where they've quickly adjusted. Some people haven't adjusted as quickly. Um, but wherever you are on that spectrum... Uh, I hope that the message that we have this today will be one that is, that is interesting and kind of gives you that sense that there is still hope for everybody. Let's just bow our heads. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the stories that are in there that just give us a sense of who you are. Stories that allow us to get a glimpse into your character. 
And I pray that as we unpack that a little bit today, that you will uh, inspire us in your spirit to give us some of that hope that you have given to the children of Israel in times gone by, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm guessing that the journey into Egypt must have been filled with some excitement, a bit of relief, and I guess a bit of apprehension. Excitement because he had not seen his son in who knows how long. The son that he thought was dead, killed by wild animals. I guess there was some relief because now he's going to be able to support his family and keep them alive through this terrible famine that they were having in Canaan. And then I guess there was a little bit of apprehension because, well, he didn't really know what to expect. His favourite son, a leader in Egypt. But what was Egypt like? Well, Jacob, I guess, needn't have worried because everything had this Fantastic fairy, fairy tale ending. I'd guess a fairy tale ending of Disney proportions because he lives the rest of his day out in peace and safety and he even gets to be buried with his father and his grandfather. So let's skip forward about 110, well, 110, 1100 years or so. And the children of Israel have left Egypt and are now in the so called promised land. And they've been going through this roller coaster love hate relationship with God. They've been through periods of the judges and then the heady days of the early kings, Saul, David, Solomon, the good old days when they as a nation were more or less united. And now they were the divided nations, the nations of Israel and of Judah. Well, maybe I should say they were divided because about a hundred or so years before our story starts, uh, the kingdom of Israel, the light had been snuffed out. God allowing them to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And the kingdom of Judah had just come through one of the worst periods in their lifetime of bad behavior under the leadership of King Manasseh. In fact, it was so bad that God had finally decided that he was going to banish them as a nation from out of his sight because of the terrible things that King Manasseh had done. You know, I've often wondered what it takes or what it would take to push God over to the edge. You know, what would it take to make him shake his head in disgust and to say, you know what, I've had enough. Have you ever thought, I wonder if I've pushed God too far? I wonder if I've repeatedly rejected his guidance and his spirit's prompting and he's finally gone off to find someone else to do his work for him. Now, I've often heard and thought that God never gives up on us. No matter how bad we are, there is no sin that can be forgiven. Matthew 12, 
31 and 32 says, there is nothing done or said that cannot be forgiven. But if you deliberately persist in your slanders against God's spirit, you are rejecting the very one who forgives. If you reject the Son of Man out of some misunderstanding, well, you know what? The Holy Spirit can forgive you. But when you reject the Holy Spirit, you're sawing off the branch that you're sitting on and severing, by your own perversity, all connection with the one who forgives. And I like that analogy of sawing off the branch that you're currently sitting on. By constantly rejecting the Spirit's prompting, constantly rejecting the prophets that God sent them, I'm guessing that maybe the leaders of Israel had finally sinned against the Holy Spirit. In 1 Kings 21, it tells us some of the things that King Manasseh had done. It said that he brought an idol of the goddess Asherah into the temple. It said that he actually sacrificed his own son as a burnt offering. It says that he led the people to commit worse sins than the nations around them, the ones that they actually drove out as they went into Canaan. And in verse 16 of 1 Kings 21, it says that Manasseh killed so many innocent people that the streets of Jerusalem were flowing with blood. Now, the New Testament has some commentary about this sort of activity that went on. Uh, when they were about to stone Stephen to death, in Acts 7, 51 to 54, it's, he says to them, you know, as he's there on the ground probably, with them rocks in hand, how stubborn you are. How heathen are your hearts. How deaf you are to God's message. You're just like your ancestors. You two have also always resisted the Holy Spirit. And was there any prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed God's messengers. The ones that announced the coming of your righteous servant. And now you've betrayed and murdered Jesus himself. You are the ones who received God's laws that were handed down to you by angels, and yet you haven't accepted. And when they heard this, it says, they became enraged. I'm guessing the truth often hurts. Do you ever worry that maybe you've reached this stage? Got God to the point where, you know, you wonder if you've severed that link between you and God? Worried that, He's going to eventually give up on you. Well, even though King Josiah had a little mini-reformation, the damage had already been done. And we pick up our story in 2 Kings 23 after his death. And the people chose his son Jehoaz to be king. Jehoaz lasts for three months. And then the Egyptian king Pharaoh... Pharaoh, um, Necho, invades and takes him as prisoner, installs his brother uh, as king. His name is Jehoiakim. 
So now Jehoiakim has to collect more taxes from his people because he has to pay his Egyptian masters. And unfortunately, Jehoiakim didn't follow the example of his father, his, his grandfather, and he did things that he shouldn't do. So God sends the prophet Jeremiah with a message. Let me pause here for a minute. Have you ever thought what it might be like to be a prophet? Have you ever wanted to be a prophet? Because have you ever wondered what it must be like for God to say to a prophet, I've got a message for you and I want you to go and deliver it. Because oftentimes the message that God had wasn't a very palatable message. And it wasn't as if he was saying to the prophet, now I want you to go and write a letter and send it on to them or give it to a friend of a friend of a friend to go and give the message. He says, go into the lion's den, figuratively speaking, and give the message. So he says to Jeremiah, go inside the temple and give the message. Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 1 says, Soon after Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, became king of Judah, the Lord said to me, stand in the court of the temple and proclaim all I have commanded you to say. And say to the people who come from the different towns of Judah to worship, don't leave anything out. Perhaps the people will listen and give up their evil ways. And if they do, then you know what? I'll change my mind about the destruction that I'm planning to deliver on them because of their wicked deeds. And say to them this, this is what the Lord says. If you don't listen to me, if you don't follow my law that I've set before you, if you do not listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, who I've sent you over and over and over again, then I will make this house like Shiloh and this city a curse among all the nations of the earth. To see the state that the people of Judah, God's people, had got into, in verse 11 it says, and the priests and the prophets said to the officials and all the people, this man should be sentenced to death because he has prophesied against our city. Think about that for a minute. They didn't say he's prophesied against God or against the, the Bible. They said he's prophesied against the city. And it made me pause for a minute. And as a leader, what, what are my priorities? Where's my focus? If Jeremiah was to come to Castle Hill today and preach Reformation, would I be enraged? Would I be one of the ones calling for his censorship? Have I gotten so complacent that I'm failing to see or to hear God's message, even if it's handed down by angels? So because of this, Jeremiah is taken and put on trial before King Jehoiakim by the priests and the prophets. Jeremiah's trials and all the things that he went through is a subject for a complete sermon by itself, so we won't go into that. Suffice to say that it is due to the intervention of the elders that prevents Jeremiah from losing his life. 
So what is God to do? His people, the ones that he's made that covenant with, they're not really interested in anything he's got to say. They prefer the gods and the practices of the surrounding nations and they've rejected him and they have rejected the promptings of the Spirit. Now there's a saying that says, desperate times calls for desperate measures. In other words, there might be some adverse circumstances and because of those adverse circumstances, because solutions that we might have chosen were appropriate and not, no longer appropriate, we have to do things that we hadn't thought of before. Maybe things that aren't the best choice. So God looks for other people that maybe we don't expect to do his work for him. And in this instance, God uses an ambitious new king of Babylon by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. In Jeremiah 25, 7-9, it says, Because you refuse to listen to any of this, now I am really angry. And this is God talking. Because you have refused to listen to what I've said, I'm stepping in. I'm sending armies out of the north, headed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant in this, and I'm setting them on this land and the people even in the surrounding countries. So God has said, you wouldn't listen, you wouldn't do what I offered, you didn't do the things that were most reasonable, so I've got to take matters into my own hands. And he says, I will banish the sound of joy, singing, laughter, marriage festivities, genial workmen, candlelit suppers, the whole landscape will be one of a vast wasteland. These countries will be subjection to the king of Babylon for 70 years. So right now, this is the beginning of the end for Judah. And even outside of the Bible, history does recall that Nebuchadnezzar leads an army against the Egyptians, led by Pharaoh Necho, and the Assyrians, and defeating them in the Battle of Carchemish. He has already significant pedigree, and by the time he ascends to the throne, following his father's death, the first thing he does is to secure his borders. And now, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, gets his attention. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 5 and 6 says, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king of Judah, and he ruled Jerusalem for 11 years. He sinned against the Lord his God, and King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylonia invaded Judah, captured Jehoiakim, and took him to Babylon in chains. And along with King Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar also takes the brightest and best of Judah off to Babylon. And it leads to a story we know very well. In Daniel chapter 1, it talks about King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon attacking Jerusalem and they all get captured and taken to Babylon. And there the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief official, to select from among the Israelite exiles some of the young men of the royal family of noble families. And they 
had to be handsome, intelligent, well-trained, and so on. And that's how Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, end up in captivity. So back in Judah, that leaves 18-year-old Jehoiakim as king in charge. He lasts for three months. Nebuchadnezzar comes back, takes him back into captivity, and installs his uncle as king. So you could imagine how the children of Israel are now feeling. And I don't know if you've ever, uh, maybe as a child, done something that you knew you shouldn't have done, and then your parents come home and you're wondering, "Uh uh-oh, now I'm going to be in trouble. And you start thinking, I should have just left it alone, or I shouldn't have played with that, or I shouldn't have done, I should have just listened. I should have just listened to the prophet Jeremiah. And I suspect there are some people who are saying, we were telling you, we tried to tell you, but you wouldn't listen. I wonder how many of them were saying, I never thought God would allow this to happen. To us, his chosen people. And then again, I suspect there were many who were praying and calling out to God for help again. Finally listening to the minority like Daniel who had always trusted him. And I can also imagine God looking down and feeling sorry for them again. What should he do? Knowing full well that if he relented, they'd forget him again in double-quick time. So God tells Jeremiah, I want you to write a message to my people. And we read it in Jeremiah chapter 29. The Lord God Almighty, God of Israel, says to all the people whom he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take away as prisoners from Jerusalem to Babylon. I want you to build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what you grow from them. Marry, have children. Let your children get married and let them have children because you must increase and not decrease. Work for the good of the cities where I have made you go as prisoners. Pray to me on their behalf because if they are prosperous, you too will be prosperous. Can you imagine how the Israelites felt hearing that message from God? God is in a sense saying to them, I'm going to allow you to thrive even though you are in exile. And while you're there, bless the nations around you. Because they are my caretakers. They're caretaking in my behalf for the next 70 years. Now, there were some false prophets at the time telling the people what they wanted to hear. Um, They were telling them things like, don't worry, in two years' time, we're going to be freed. And God continues to tell them in uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 10, as soon as Babylon's 70 years are up, and not a day before, I will show up and take care of you, as I promised, and bring you back home. I know what I'm doing. 
I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hope for. And when you call on me, when you call on me, when you come to me and pray, I'll listen. When you come looking for me, you'll find me. When you get serious about finding me and want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you're not disappointed. I'm going to turn things around for you. I'll bring you back from all the countries that I've scattered you off into. Bring you home to the place from which I sent you. You can count on it. What a powerful message of hope. Sure, listen, it may have been hard to swallow. 70 years in captivity, and I'm sure some of them are saying, well, I will never go home. But their God was still there looking out for them, blessing their captors through the process. Can you imagine that? A God who had gotten so disgusted with his people He wanted them wiped from the face of the earth. He uses a Gentile king to preserve and sustain them while allowing them to prosper in a foreign land. It's almost like he can't really forget his people. Sure, he needs to discipline them, but he wants to put his arms of love around them. Now, I don't know what it must have been like forgot all those years bringing the people out of Egypt and finally seeing them dispersed into nations in captivities, putting an end to the dynasty of the royal kings. Uh, To be fair, a royal dynasty that he didn't really want in the first place. And this cycle of rejection and reconciliation is so well described in Psalms 106. And if you read through the whole of Psalms 106, and I would certainly recommend you go do that, you get a glimpse of what it must have been like to be God. Because it's almost like a parent with a wayward and stubborn child. Over and over, they reject him. Over and over, he relents and reaches out to them. And although it's for a different time, verses 40 to 46 of Psalm 106 could so easily be applied to the final point in this final dynasty of his people. It says, the Lord was angry with his people. He was disgusted by them, and he abandoned them to the power of the heathen, and their enemies ruled over them, and they were oppressed by their enemies and were in complete subjection to them. And many times the Lord rescued his people, but they chose to rebel against him and sank deeper into sin. And yet the Lord heard them when they cried out, and he took notice of their distress. And for, the sake, for their sake he remembered his covenant because of the great love he had for them. He relented. He made all their oppressors feel sorry for them. And you know, I love the twist that the Message Bible puts on this, on this last part. It says, still, when God saw the trouble they were in, 
and heard their cries for help. He remembered his covenant with them and, immense with love, he took them by the hand. He poured mercy out on them while their captors looked on amazed. What a beautiful image that is. And even today, every time I read it, I need to stop and think about the immense love that would cause you to keep coming back to somebody who didn't want you. So what about you? Have you ever felt as though God, you've let him down? Maybe you feel as though he's abandoned you because of what you've done. And maybe you feel alone. And the circumstance that you're currently in are a direct consequence of what you've done, of your actions, leaving you wondering what will happen next. How would you feel if you got a letter from God saying, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future? Or as I read earlier, you know what, I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not to abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hoped for. Sometimes the path that we're on is not God's path. But he allows us to travel it anyway. And sometimes he sends prompts and nudges and sometimes he puts obstacles in the way. But many a time we kind of find our way around those things because of our stubbornness and our waywardness and cause us to just continue down the path that he doesn't want. And I can imagine God becoming exasperated and finally says, all right, all right, have it your way. It's going to take you a while to get through this, but when you do, when you do come out the other side, this is what I have in store for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope for a future. What do you do when you receive a special letter or a message from someone special? Well, you file it in a, away in some safe place and you take it out and you read it when you're feeling good. And even more so when you're not feeling good. I think God intended Israel to read and reread and reread that letter throughout their 70 years in captivity. A letter to give them hope. Why not bookmark the letter in Jeremiah 29 and then read and reread this letter. Read it this week coming. Whether you're feeling good or whether you're feeling low, claim it as our letter of hope from a loving God who just wants the best for us. And as we read it and reread it, allow it just to give you that sense of peace that only God can give. Let's pray. Father God, we reflect on your relationship with the children of Israel. And we realize that in many ways we are just like them. We fall in and out of love with you and we stray sometimes a short distance, sometimes a much longer distance. And yet, whenever you hear us call, whenever you hear our cries for help, 
you're there with your hands stretched out. I want to thank you that even though we stray away from you, you still have great plans for us. Plans to prosper us and plans to give us hope. Even though it might take us a while to get there because of our own stubbornness. Thank you. I pray that every individual listening to this gets a, a little glimpse into the awesome love that sits behind that simple yet profound statement and feels refreshed with the hope that emerges from that. In the name of Jesus, amen.